Hi Secreters! So I know I promised you a video and I kind of get swept up in some of the various um, conversations we have on the wall and I think, oh, I'm going to talk about that in a video and then so I'm trying to compile notes and go along. <laughs> and so I've been a little sick and lost my voice so I'm <clears throat> getting it back. So bear with me. Uh, I wanted to talk about the deciphering of poem four. So um, this poem obviously is for the Cleveland find and I know we hadn't really had a chance to talk about that yet and kind of decipher the meanings. And so I'll walk you through the verse and then we'll talk a little bit about the meaning and the 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 change of some of the lines in the verses. So, it says, beneath two countries, as the road curves. So, clearly, beneath two countries, we have to think, okay, what are the countries he's talking about? And then, as the road curves, is a directive, right? It's telling you, this is part of the map. And we know this now. We have some great secreters on here that have posted, I think, some of the maps to show the actual road curving, how it lines up in the painting which is super cool. Um, but let's go back to Beneath Two Countries. So in order to understand Beneath Two Countries, we have to understand the Roman Empire. So when this was written and Byron was wanting to cleverly kind of lead you to thinking this may be the potential Greek cask, it could have also been confusing for the Italian cask too. Right? Because when you think of Rome, you think of what? Right? The Roman Empire. Caesar. So the Roman Empire actually began in Constantinople, uh, where Caesar, Caesar proclaimed to be an emperor, right? Which, in today's terminology and time, that area would be Istanbul, which is in Turkey. So... When he says beneath two countries, are you saying, hey, Byron, are we talking about Greece and Turkey? Or are we talking about Greece and Italy? Right? So this is kind of interesting. And I kind of tend to think that uh, he wanted us to research that, understand where the Roman Empire started in Turkey, which, by the way, Turkey's pretty close to Saudi Arabia over there, right? So... When we think of fairy secrets coming twos, like sometimes these are so closely mirrored and paired together by geography that it can be very confusing. But beneath two countries, to me, tells me that he is talking about Greece and he's talking about Italy. And so what would lend you to think which poem this would be? So as we go further, in a rectangular plot... So, okay, this is visual, right? So, as the road curves, visual in a rectangular plot, visual. Beneath the tenth stone, again, map, visual. <laughs> from right to left, so he's telling you from right to left. Beneath the ninth row, from the top, again, visual. Of the wall, including small bricks, visual. Seven steps up, you can hop. So, again, He's telling you, visual and physical, from the bottom level. And then he throws in Socrates, 
Pindar, and Apelles. So then we know, okay, he's talking about at least Pindar is, you know, a Greek writer. And then we have Socrates of the era and Apelles as well. So this poem feels like it's leaning more towards Greece and less Italy. So then, and this is something else which I want to kind of understand too, and I should really go to the Cleveland Cultural Gardens. Maybe one day I will get to travel there. It would be kind of cool and kind of see, you know, what actually exists in that garden for the Greek gardens. Um, is it just that wall with the pillars and things like that? Or is there other statuaries and things around it? And maybe some of you out there already might know and can share that. He says, free speech, couplet birch. So free speech is super critical to understanding where the city is. Because when you look at free speech, then it takes you, uh, as we talk about through the fair folk and different things, he has um, put that there for a reason because the city of Cleveland is the citadel of free speech. So it has the, uh, basically the oldest independent free speech forum in the United States. Began and founded June 14th of 1912. And since then, all the presidents that we've had from then on have come to this part of Cleveland to speak in these forums about free speech and their platforms and having the ability to do it without, um, you know, some monarchy uh, recourse because we don't have a monarchy here. It was a place where it was a platform for people to talk about the things of the day, the issues, how to get resolution for things from, you know, the, the flush of immigrants coming in and working in factories and jobs and not being um, protected by labor laws and all of these other facets that come together. And to this day, this is why, you know, presidents will still go, is almost kind of um, customary to speak at this club in Cleveland. And so then we go back to, he says, Couplet Birch, right? So then he makes the comment in the hip book that, the two lines that rhyme think about Shakespeare. So here he's implying that, you know, basically Shakespeare took all of his plays and based them off of these writers, off of these stories of Greek mythology, and kind of turned it into what he made them into were these plays that are stood and still stand the test of time. I truly believe that if Shakespeare had not had the knowledge of these writers, we wouldn't know his name today, right? He was a creative force that took those myths and almost kind of brought him into quote-unquote today's English society back when he was in England and wrote out these plays in a way that mirrored that mythology. So that's what Byron's wanting you to think about. And then when we go to 
to find Cask's destination, seek the columns for the search, right? So we know that there were the columns on the uh, the Parthenon, right? So you have the Greek uh, mention of these columns, and so he's he's wanting you to use your brain and and formulate that into this is the Greek poem. So then, to go a step further, when we throw in the other elements of Cleveland, when we look at the influx of Greek immigrants and what became Little Greece uh, in Cleveland, and we have, you know, a huge Rockefeller presence, which we know that Rockefeller was mentioned in the book too because he was technically a robber baron. Rockefeller had his first oil wells in Cleveland uh, and northern parts of Ohio and obviously depleted them, wasted a lot of it because he was making kerosene and didn't know what to do with the byproduct for a while until Henry Ford came along and was like, hey, we need some gasoline. So, you know, not only was Rockefeller there, became this robber baron uh, and depletes the oil wells and the oil fields, um, he mentions, you know, the environment, right? Wants us to think about the environment. And to this day, the Rockefeller Foundation still gives money to um, Greek uh, corporate, or not corporations, but um, the like, patron of the arts uh, for Greek society. And they still, to this day, his great-great-granddaughter gives money and is a part of this, you know, Greek um, committee for for the arts and for preservation of Greece's history. Because Rockefeller himself was actually a fanatic about Greek mythology, history of Greece, um, the artesian... Uh, and that might be the correct word, but the architecture of that time. And in fact, has many of his homes and art and things that were modeled along the lines of, of Greek art. So when you break the poem down like that, then it, you know, it pretty much kind of seals its fate for being uh, full on 100% for the Greek gemstone. So, I have to think that, you know, as we've said before, the poems will continue to get a little harder. Um, but logical thought process is extremely important when we're looking at these poems and trying to decide, okay, what is the literary thought? What is the physical mapping visual and how he fluctuates between the two, right? Um, which then lends me to talk about the literary element. So when Byron was writing The Secret, or the forward portion of The Secret, depending on who you talk to about the meat of the book, uh, he utilized many different types of resources, literary resources, right? Uh, he obviously, from even reading poem four, had a deep appreciation for Socrates, Pindar, Apelles, and, I'm, and I know I've talked about Pindar before because 
I'll sound like a broken record because he's the one that wrote about Dauntless and Inconquerable. And I think there are reasons why Byron puts some of these uh, Greek writers or Dante, the Italian writer, and these people into the mix because he wants us to not only learn about them, um, but they could also potentially be clues, right? Even like a visual clue, as the case was for... um, even M&B set in stone, right? We have another series of artists, maybe not literary, but more musically, obviously, with Mozart and Beethoven. So he's not only educating us really well as we go along with the secret book, and I know many of you have probably had multiple conversations with people and blown them away with your history knowledge, and, and Byron would be grinning, right? He'd be like, this is what it's about. You get the secret. And and then it just becomes like the gem and the cask are kind of an afterthought, right? Because you really do learn the secret of the secret was the knowledge. And so, but going back to his resources. So, you know, I pointed out before how much I, you know, I enjoy and I've marked up this dictionary pretty good. Um, in the hint book, it's so critical, the Japanese version hint book that talks about, um, where he tells you to look in these dictionaries and in the books of quotations and, you know, look up a, basically a timeline, a chronology of world history. And so he's telling you the resources to use. And then people make the mistake of going online and using the dictionary. And that has been, I think, a huge crutch and problem in solving some of these because over time, dictionaries change. Words become changed. They become obsolete uh, or they get reformatted into a different way that completely loses their original meaning that they were made with. Um, And so I want to talk to you a little bit about that because, you know, Thomas Paine, who I know Eric can appreciate, uh, you know, he wrote The Rights of Man and Common Sense back in the 1700s, right? And so he's a champion for getting rid of everything British because we had won our independence and we were like, we're going to do things differently here. We are not a part of the mother country anymore. So therefore we need our own language, right? And so he says that we need to dust the cobwebs, uh, the intellectual and cultural influences away And we need our own. We don't need to be subservient to this ancient heritage that's the British, you know, I'm better than you, I can talk better than you, this this kind of persona, right? Because they want to be American now. And one of the funny things is, you know, he says, it's hard to separate, but we need to change our mental culture. Right. And so then I immediately my mind goes to culture vulture. (laughs) So and how befitting that they're in Connecticut. Right. Because that's New England. And so 
when we're looking at these dictionaries, uh, it might be more helpful and beneficial to utilize ones that he would have used at that time. And if that means go to a library and get an old dictionary because that's, you know, or an old bookstore or a used bookstore, that is where you're going to find these things. This is where the meat of some of this grammatical, like, doublespeak in words is going to help you put things together. So I have more on this. We're going to talk some more. I'm going to do another video, but I feel like I'm losing my voice again, so this is going to be a short video. But I wanted to at least put something up to get some conversation started. So you guys have a great day. When I log back in, I will be coming to you from Boulder. I have to make a trip out to Colorado, and it's going to be fun. And, uh, and I'll have some pretty scenery back there. So, carry on.